0: This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm speaking with cinematographer Steve Gaynor, ASC, ASK, about his work as co-curator of the ASC's Historic Camera Collection. Steve's screen credits include the films Bully, Teenage Caveman, and What's Up Rockers with director Larry Clark, Mysterious Skin with Greg Araki, A Dirty Shame with John Waters, and the very R-rated pre-Marvel Studios' Punisher Warzone with Lexi Alexander, as well as numerous music videos and television series.
1: One of the reasons that I try so hard to preserve the history of the American Society of Cinematographers is so that the future can see these things and can learn from these things. God only knows what's going to be going on in cinematography in five years.
0: As curator of the ASC's museum collection, Steve has blended a love of history and cinematography with a talent for engineering and communication into a truly unique experience that bridges the past and present for a whole new generation of filmmakers. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll get right to it. But first, this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. The American Society of Cinematographers Masterclass Program is designed for cinematographers with an intermediate to advanced skill set. Prominent society members and ASC associates serve as instructors, offering their unique insights on the creative and technical aspects of the cinematographer's profession. Enrolling in the ASC Masterclass enables you to hone your craft and make connections that can jumpstart your career. Enrollment is limited to 30 participants. Applicants must submit a current resume in order to be considered, and all instructors are subject to availability. The five-day in-person Los Angeles seminars will begin March 2024. For more information and class schedule, go to theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. Steve, it's so good to talk to you again. It feels like it's been a while. We've kept in touch, but we really haven't had any lengthy conversation in some time.
1: You know, we haven't hung out since packing things up for the uh, restructuring of the building. That was a long time ago.
0: Yeah, it was like 20 years ago. You, me, uh, first it was you and John Whitmer, the former managing editor at the magazine, who's now at Panavision. And I remember Michael Goy and Victor Kemper and Izzy Mankowski being around the clubhouse a lot at that time, just, you know, kind of checking in on all the cool stuff we were cataloging and photographing and packing up for storage.
1: Yep. And truthfully, only now, our recent uh, writers and actors strike has uh, given me uh, a certain amount of freedom and availability that ordinarily I don't have because obviously I work let's call it a year almost i have spent a lot of time and there were certain items that still had not been unpacked and i'm happy to let you know that we did a fantastic job and uh, nothing uh, fell ill due to being wrapped up in the bubble wrap for that amount of time you know i was concerned because it is a petroleum product but i uh I'm really happy to tell you that uh, everything came out uh, just rosy and beautiful. And as it was when we packed it away, oh so long ago. You know, you were, I'm guessing, uh, 11 then. So uh,
0: and it feels like it. No, I was in my early 20s, so I, I might as well have been 11. Um, you said that you've been working and I know that you've done some producing and directing lately, but you're still primarily a director of photography. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I'm primarily a cinematographer. And uh, just prior to the strike, uh, I finished an Amazon show called With Love. I had two other shows that were scheduled to go, uh, one Netflix and one Amazon, and both of them vanished into thin air once the strike was announced. So I think the entire industry at this point is, um, you know, trying to figure out where we are. So I've been, you know, I've been doing a little bit of my own uh, damage control on this end because, you know, living in Los Angeles is not free. (laughs) So I have been uh, producing and directing, uh, and I can't say too much because I'm NDA'd on these things, but I have been producing and directing some pilots for documentary series, which are pretty cool, which don't involve writers or SAG actors.
0: You're also a member of the Slovak Association of Cinematographers, the ASK, as well as being ASC, of course. How did that come about?
1: I, uh, I've shot quite a bit in Eastern Europe. I love it there. I think of it as my second home. It's beautiful. Those countries there, uh, Serbia, Slovakia, Croatia, they have fantastic deals as far as uh, re- producers recouping certain amounts of uh, their funding. And they also have really, really talented crews. I mean, I'm just blown away with the crews that are over there. And so uh, I've, uh, I've shot several films over there, and I was asked if I was interested in joining. And I said, sure, why not? Like I say, I consider that my second home. If I were a younger man, such as yourself, I might even consider moving over there because there's so much work. There's so many resources. It's so beautiful. And uh, it also inspires one of my hobbies, which is metal detecting. (laughs) And since, since I was 12 years old, I've spent some of my spare time, which of course we don't have that much as we get older, but my spare time in uh, researching historical events and taking a metal detector, which those things have pretty much improved like digital cameras have over the past 15 years, but uh, they have improved so much. And I go to places and when in Eastern Europe, when allowed, I go to locations where Romans were or Celts were, or just medieval people lived. And I love finding their coins and buttons and uh, accoutrements. So spend a lot of time, downtime doing that. And when you're in Eastern Europe, uh, you have a couple of choices of things you can do with your time. You can either metal detect or drink rakia. And uh, while I love rakia, I also love finding my way home at night. So I (laughs) take a lot of my spare time and actually uh, research... And go out and find some cool Roman coins and stuff. You know, it's amazing.
0: Sounds like you're a bit of a history buff.
1: Well, uh, one would think, huh? I mean, uh, I am an authority on the history of cinematography. And I'm also a collector of vintage guitars and amps and a player as well. Here's my theory on all of this in order to really progress, you have to have a firm understanding of history. You know, I feel like. Not that many people these days spend any time researching and understanding truly what's going on in the past. Innumerable wars, horrible, horrible situations that human beings have been placed in under the dictatorship or rule of other people. Very rarely are young people, I think, really investing time in understanding that. And, you know, by not understanding that, you're not preventing that cycle from happening again. You know what I mean? Oh, agreed. And we can talk more about that later when we talk about uh, specifically one camera that you had an interesting question about. We'll, we'll get to that.
0: Right. And by putting people in touch literally with the past, you're able to make it more real.
1: For instance, uh, when I was a child, I went with my family to Washington, D.C., and we went to Ford's Theater, and I saw the gun that Booth used to shoot Lincoln. Now, that's mind-blowing, first of all, that it even exists but that I was able to put my eyes on that thing. And uh, is that thing necessarily, you know, something that should be celebrated? Of course not. But does it bring it home that this actually happened and that, you know, here is the device that actually did it? Yeah, and I think it's important for people to see these things like that because it, it makes the event real. You know, this happened 160 some odd years ago. How in the world can you connect with that? You can't necessarily connect with it by reading about it, you know, on Wikipedia. But if you can see, you know, Lincoln's chair with the blood stains on it, it becomes an, an immediate thing, a tactile thing. And one of the reasons that I struggle and try so hard to preserve the history of the American Society of Cinematographers is so that the future can see these things and can learn from these things. You know, not only knows what's going to be going on in cinematography in five years, let alone a hundred years from now, but in five years, will AI be creating imagery? We don't know. Is it a possibility? Yes. So my job is to keep these things, these Pathé cameras, these Parvo cameras, these Mitchells, these Bell and Hells in pristine condition, actually in working condition so that people can put their hands on them. You know, the ASC museum with certain restrictions, has always been a hands-on type of museum. This is not a white glove thing. And most of our cameras are functioning, if you have film. So when I'm bringing students through or when I'm giving a tour to whomever, it's important that they crank the camera. It doesn't hurt the camera. The camera loves it. It wants to be cranked. But to turn a camera that was used 100 years ago, 110 years ago, it suddenly makes it real. You know we've all seen the images the video images of guys cranking cameras but we haven't all turned the crank and to me it's really important to turn the crank you know then you get it you're you're there you're where the cinematographer was you know and and your depth of understanding of the history and the meaning of cinematography is so much deeper you know it's so much more important I, that's that's my feeling anyway. That's why I do
0: it. How did you become the curator of the ASC Museum?
1: Around 1998, I was shooting shooting a lot of these things called infomercials. Uh, they are rarely seen today, but essentially it was something that looked like a talk show, but in fact was an a long advertisement. You know, guests would come onto the set and sit with the host and talk about their products. So uh, it was horrible, but I had to start somewhere. And I was shooting these things, and I learned that there was this thing online called eBay. And so I started browsing it, and I started seeing vintage cameras. Well, that really piqued my interest, because I was very much interested in the history of cinematography. And that began by me reading a book by Joseph Walker ASC, who was Frank Capra's cinematographer. The book is called The Light on Her Face. It's a fantastic book and it inspired me and made me, you know, thrilled about the idea of cinematography. Of course, I was under the impression that a cinematographer was setting lights and, you know, setting up these incredible dolly moves and uh, making art. When later I would find that probably a good 60 to 75 percent of cinematography is negotiating with producers and trying to get that gear to use and also, you know, just trying to get the gig. So. I started buying cameras and I started learning about the vintage gear, and I heard that there was a, a museum at the ASC for cameras. Now, of course, the ASC Clubhouse was the veritable temple of cinematography, still is. And I went to the gate and I pushed the buzzer and they just opened the gate. <laughs> and, and I went inside and I walked into the building, and it was very dark, and there were a couple of elder statesman members. I won't mention any names, but they're they're gone now. And uh, they were they were in the back. And I walked in and I started looking at the cases. And one of them said, "Can I help you?" And I said, uh, "Yes, I just came to look at the vintage cameras." And he goes, "Would you please leave?" <laughs> so I left. And I was terrified, right? So, but I came back. You know, I figured he couldn't be there all the time. And I came back, and I came back, and I came back. And one time that I was visiting. The person who was in charge, kind of the caretaker of the building and the lawns and all, uh, Benny, uh, Benny was walking past and he had a, a vintage lens in his hands and he goes, I don't know. He was talking to someone. He goes, I don't know where it goes. I don't even know what camera it's for. And I looked and I said, oh, well, that's a lens for the Technicolor camera. And he goes, how do you know that? I go, well, I collect all cameras. And by the way, who's in charge of this collection? And he goes, that's the problem. No one is in charge of the collection. And I said, wow, well, who would one speak to to find out about getting that gig? And he said, Victor. And I said, Victor? He goes, yeah, Victor Kemper. And I go, Victor Kemper. And somebody behind me said yes. And I turned around and it was Victor Kemper. Now, Victor Kemper, who recently passed away, uh, was an incredible cinematographer. His body of work is maddening because he goes so far as from, you know, dog day afternoon the Pee Wee's Big Adventure and so many great films. He worked, you know, all the time throughout his career. So I was in awe to meet Victor Kemper. I knew who he was. And he looked at me and he goes, hey, um, have a seat. I've got a, a meeting that I'm doing and I'll come out and talk to you. So I sat down. It was probably about 10 a.m. He came back out at 5 p.m. <laughs> and I was still sitting there and he goes, you're still here? And I said, yep. So he said, all right, come in my office. So I sold him my bill of goods. I told him I was a collector. Uh, At that time, I was working at Paramount Pictures in the laboratory, and I knew quite a few members of the ASC from Paramount Pictures. So he goes, well, I'll bring this up to the board, at the next board meeting. And luckily, many of those board members were cinematographers that I'd met at Paramount. So they had a trust in me from running the lab, and I was made the curator of the ASC's camera collection. That was a long time ago. And I was, you know, overwhelmed and uh, on pins and needles. So I think it was probably about four months later that he called me and said, you're in. And I began the process first of inventorying what was visible. And I did that for many months. And at that period of my life, I was shooting a ton of music videos, which meant that I made enough money that I didn't work all the time. I worked, you know, a couple of days a week or one whole week, and then it was off for a week. So I had a lot of free time. And I spent that free time inventorying and organizing the collection to the point where I was convinced that I had it set up. And then old Ben Taguchi once again came to me and goes, hey, can I get you to help me with something? And I said, sure. So he led me outside of the building and around back and there was a wrought iron gate on the bottom of the building. He unlocked it and opened it up. And he goes, look in there. And it was like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. There's cobwebs and dust. And a, there was a vent that sunlight was coming through and making a ray of light. And I couldn't believe what I saw. I saw dozens of vintage motion picture cameras sitting on the dirt underneath the ASC clubhouse. <laughs> Just sitting there. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, first of all, my, my first thought was, where the hell am I going to put all this stuff? The second thought was, oh, my God, you've got, you know, a... Uh, Wooden leather be- covered pathé camera sitting on the dirt. So I was terrified that you know termites. We have a lot of termites here in California. Uh, terrified that the termites had uh, made had their way with the cameras. But unbelievably, because of our the arid conditions that we had at that time, uh, none of them were damaged. And it just all required a good dusting and cleaning up, and maybe a little bit of uh, Mitchell camera oil to get them to running again. So. Uh, and uh, in a nutshell, that is the story of how I came to be this, the curator of the ASC's camera collection. Um,
0: now, at that time, what was the purpose of the collection, such as it was? Uh,
1: the, the collection began under the auspices of Arthur Miller ASC, and he started it with one of his Pathé cameras. And we now have two of his Pathé cameras, but he started it uh, with one of his Pathé cameras. And the idea, I believe, much as it is today, was to build a legacy for the members of the ASC of the vintage camera gear. And, you know, what I really like doing, and I think this was Arthur's goal, too, at least I like to think it is, is provenance. To be able to say this camera was used by Greg Tolan on Citizen Kane. That's powerful, man. The collection that we have, most of it has provenance. And we're able to say that, you know, it was used by this cinematographer and donated by this cinematographer, which is how, by the way, we get the majority of our collection is donations, either directly from the cinematographer or from his family. And, you know, we're a nonprofit org, so we're able to give tax certificates to the people who make those donations. So they're not really just giving it away. They they get something back in kind. But first, Arthur Miller and Charles Clark actually really built the collection up. He is uh, responsible for one of our most valuable pieces, which is our original Edison kinetoscope. There are six of those known in the world and we have one uh, he also gave one to the academy and that is actually at the margaret herrick uh, library right now if uh, anyone goes there they can see that one there but we have one they have one and then there are four more that are spread right around the world so uh, the original k- kinetoscope in case uh, no one knows what that is was what edison initially was showing his motion pictures on he wasn't projecting originally he was using a kinetoscope which is a box that has a loop of film and a light and you can look inside and you can watch that loop of film play after you paid. So Edison you know, specifically wanted to be paid as do we all.
0: Sure. You got to get that nickel.
1: The nickel, particularly because, you know, you do know that those theaters were called Nickelodeons, and that's where that term comes from. Uh, so, you know, of course the Lumiere, uh, brothers, uh, in, uh, in France began projecting. And shortly thereafter, uh, Edison worked, uh, with his engineers, notably uh, W.K.L. Dixon, in order to uh, begin projecting in the United States, Uh, whereupon the early movie theaters, uh, a a really popular one, one uh, in particular that the Warner Brothers used, uh, were funeral homes. They already had the chairs. Uh, The
0: the Kinetoscope, is that still in working condition?
1: Absolutely. You know, I would say 80 to 90% of our collection is in working condition. Some things are just broken. And uh, they're kept broken because they were broken while in use. Other things uh, are impossible to replace certain pieces without it being too obvious and you know look like a forgery. But the majority of the cameras uh, have been cranked or plugged in because we we do have cameras, mini cameras that were used after the hand crank era. You know we have all the way up into modern cameras. We have a prototype of the RED camera, the red, of, of the RED One. We have a, a Panavision Genesis camera. We have an Arri Alexa. You know, we have we have the, the earlier cameras. In, in the digital age, all the way back to the very beginning, we have a Lumiere camera, a very early one with the round perforations, not the Edison purse. But again, you know, Provenance makes the world go around when we're talking about collecting. And that's been my goal from the very beginning, was to make certain that uh, the names of the cinematographers and the films were associated with the pieces that we have.
0: What kinds of objects are in the collection other than the ones that we've talked about?
1: Well, we do have a small collection of projectors, though that's really not uh, what we're about. You know, the cinematographers ordinarily wouldn't have that much to do with a projector. That's something that was uh, post, basically. Uh, but we do have a large collection of cinematographers' personal possessions, like light meters and uh, viewing filters, and uh, you know just the the stuff of an everyday cinematographer. And those things changed over the years. You know, initially, cinematographers would carry you know paint brushes and nets that they would burn with cigarettes to burn holes in, so that certain areas weren't diffused with the net and um, net frames and. Scissors. you know you wouldn't think of a cinematographer necessarily today valuing uh, a pair of scissors in his kit but in the early days that was a very valuable tool you know because you were cutting mats or nets or what whatever you might need to work on your camera a lot of things you couldn't call panavision or auto or keslo and have a tech drop by set real quick if you were out in the desert with a couple of 2709s shooting you had to know how to fix the things yourself so you wanted to have for instance i recently took in a donation of the great elmer dyer asc's uh, possessions and he had all sorts of tools in his kit because you know he was an aerial cinematographer that's probably what he's the most famous for is his aerial work he had to mount the things you know the the grip crews back in that silent area were not the same as they are today today the grips take care of a lot of the mechanical stuff that has to happen on set but back then uh, the cinematographer was pretty much on his own and had to figure out rigging and such and uh, you know rigging a camera into a biplane that's going to be upside down is a, a challenge i would have to assume i've never done it myself but that's uh elmer did it a lot And so, you know, his his ditty bag that was part of that collection had all sorts of tools in it. And uh, it was, you know, kind of it was very entertaining and somewhat astonishing to see what he drug around with himself.
0: One of the most striking things about the collection is the amount of handmade objects. Uh, One of my favorite pieces was this tin viewfinder. It was just like a thin flat piece of metal that had been hammered into the shape of a director's viewfinder. Right. Uh, Do you remember whose that was?
1: Uh, You know, I'm I'm uncertain because that is one of the very few pieces that is in the collection that I don't think has direct provenance with a cinematographer, but it is on display in the boardroom right now. I, I know exactly where it is and I know exactly what you're talking about. We have lots of other viewfinders, you know, there was a trend back then for cinematographers to put their names on their personal things uh, with a letter punch. And so all of their viewing glasses and their little viewfinders have their names on it. And uh, there's some there's some very interesting pieces in there. And we we do have, I would say, in the collection, probably 20 to 30 uh, of those little viewfinders that are directly linked to cinematographers from the early days. So that's really cool. One of my favorite handmade things is, uh, you know, Greg Tolan, ASC, was uh, an inventor. I mean, he was clearly a, an innovator in many, many ways. And on the camera that we have on display, which is BNC number two, that he used for Citizen Kane, and uh, he also used for The Grapes of Wrath, among other films. There were several little things that he did to the camera, You know, you know, a Mitchell viewfinder, what that looks like. He built a little eyebrow for it. No one else apparently until that time had even thought of anything like that. You know, it was a trend back in that day because they were working with so many hard lights for the operator and the cinematographer and the gaffer to all have like duck bill bills on, you know, so that they could get the light out of their eyes in order to see what's going on, like like you do in a matte box, like the eyebrow on a matte mm-hmm. box. So he had the, the wherewithal to think of, well, here's the viewfinder and, you know, you're kind of putting your eyes up here. Why not have a little piece of sheet metal that's coming up to keep the light out of your eyes? So I look at that and I'm like, it's so simple. But this thing didn't occur until, you know, 1936 or 37.
0: (laughs) Right. It's like a cutter for your eyes.
1: That's all it is. But clearly no one had thought of it until that point. And after that, then, of course, uh, lots of people had it. So he he innovated uh, a jillion things like that. And if you research the archive of uh, American Cinematographer, you could find several articles where he talks about his innovations. And uh, I encourage people to do that.
0: That's so cool. And it's a good reminder that innovation doesn't always have to come in the form of some grand technical achievement.
1: That's it, man. You know, the simple things are the important things, Right.
0: And that's right. Now, I understand you've started working recently with Richard Edland ASC to co-curate the collection. How did he come to be involved, and what's he working on?
1: Well, uh, this was uh, entirely my doing. There's another person that helps me a lot. Uh, he's a director by the name of Mark Kirkland. He's Douglas Kirkland's son, a great uh, still photographer. Uh, Mark is a big camera collector and is a friend of the ASC and is... Uh, a kind of part-time co-curator, but Richard Edlin, first of all, let's just talk about Richard Edlin. Okay. Richard Edlin is unquestionably a genius. He is a living genius. He is living and breathing, and is, I'm happy to say, my friend. And he knows so much about motion picture cameras. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know. That's the old saying, right? It, also, Richard Edlin, ASC, invented the Pignose guitar amplifier as used by Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy Page, all of the greats. Eric Clapton. This guy invented the first portable guitar amp. Brilliant. Okay, so he did that. He also, by the way, won three Academy Awards. You know, just something on the side there. But Richard and I are friends, and I've spent a lot of time with him recently. And uh, I spent time uh, oogling over his collection, which is lovely. Some of it on display at the ASC currently, uh, including the Warner Brothers' very first camera. They bought it in 1918, in November of 1918, from Bell and Howells at 2709, and it's gorgeous. And uh, because he's such a powerful force for cinematography, for the history of cinematography, for history in general, I felt that it was time to bring someone like that in. And I I couldn't be more proud or honored to have Richard as uh, a co-curator of the collection with me. And it's nice to have other people who know a lot about the collection and about the history of the cameras to populate the building and, uh, you know, to tell people about it. That's, that's what we're really focusing on right now. <clears throat> I've worked, uh, been working a lot with uh, David Williams at American Cinematographer and with the website and all of that. And we've been doing these little videos called Museum Minute. And in the Museum Minute, I talk about a specific camera show how it's threaded and we talk about the various functions of the camera and uh, those are on the website and what we're what we've just done is create qr codes for each camera and each thing that's in the museum and when people go there in the future they'll be able to train their phone or apple glasses or god knows what in the in the future at the qr code and the video will come up and uh, my goofy face will pop up and say this is the mitchell standard camera that was uh, used By Mary Pickford, Charles Rochery, as he actually hand-cranked this camera shooting Mary Pickford's films, blah, 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 blah. So uh, I'm thrilled that now there's going to be a historical record that's easily accessible by visitors and doesn't necessarily require me to be there or Richard to be there. But I I have to say my happiest times are uh, when we're both there.
0: Let's talk about some of the crown jewels of the collection. We've already mentioned two cameras in passing, the first one being Greg Toland ASC's Mitchell BNC number 2, which we know was used to shoot films like Citizen Kane and The Grapes of Wrath. How would you describe this camera for those who aren't familiar with Mitchell cameras?
1: Well, the Mitchell BNC camera is a relatively large, quite heavy, motion picture camera. If you think of, uh, you know, what most people think of a Old time movie camera with the Mickey Mouse Ears magazine. It's that camera housed inside of a metal and uh, composite blimp so that it's quiet, so that you can shoot sound with it. Because, you know, the early cameras that were during the quote unquote silent era made a lot of racket and it didn't matter. But once sound became a thing, they shoved cinematographers first into a booth. And then shortly after that, uh, cinematographers began uh, demanding that. You know some sort of silencing blimp being manufactured for the camera ultimately the mitchell camera came along and made their own uh, bnc blimp noiseless camera that camera which like i said weighs quite a lot numbers one which was a prototype and numbers two number two was purchased by samuel goldwin now samuel goldwin was a mentor for greg tolan asc who began his career as a camera assistant for Sam Golan. And I actually have in my own personal collection, a bunch of Greg's contracts with uh, Sam Golan. And he actually was uh, in the beginning working for $75 a week. And at some point graduated to $150 a week as a camera assistant. (laughs) And then, you know, of course made more, but not that much more, you'd be shocked. Uh, of course that amount of money back in the twenties was quite a bit more than it is today. So when I became the curator, I made it a point. I said, there are two cameras that I must find for this collection. One, the camera used to shoot Citizen Kane, because it is arguably one of the most famous and revered motion pictures ever. And two, the camera that Billy Bitzer used with D.W. Griffith. The total camera was a lot easier. (laughs) I asked around all the aged members of the ASC, at our monthly meetings, and finally uh, ran into a guy named Sol Negrin, who was a lovely man and actually was one of the people who voted me into the ASC as a member. Sol Negrin uh, had used the camera when he was shooting the television show Kojak.
0: That's my grandma's favorite show.
1: <laughs> right. So he had used the camera and he knew that there was a gentleman by the name of Bergie Contner who owned that camera. So I had that information. Well, I started asking around about Bergie Contner then. And another of our members, a good friend of mine, Roy Wagner, ASC, who is also one of the people who voted me into the ASC as a member. And he said, hey, I know Jimmy Contner, Bergie's son. He's a director cinematographer. So we reached out via Roy to Jimmy Contner. And the camera indeed was still in their possession, was in storage, doing nothing. We suggested that it be put on display at the ASC, to which he agreed. And then sometime later, actually turned his initial loan into a donation to the ASC. So I got the camera, had it here. Uh, the, this, at one time, was uh, not a guitar studio, but was a uh, a machine shop for me. And I had a vertical mill and a lathe and all sorts of things that could rip your fingers and other digits off. So uh, ultimately, I got rid of that. But brought the camera here and it had uh, been utilized as a rental camera and had been painted blue. It had had the original Mitchell black crinkle finish taken away in a blue like epoxy type of a finish, kind of a bowling ball type finish had been put on it. So I removed that finish. Then I took the camera to Ken stone from stone cinema engineering in pine mountain, California, and said, Ken, I need you to, unreflexed this camera the camera somewhere probably in the late 60s had been reflexed you know the early cameras you didn't look through the cameras you couldn't like like in a, a modern day camera you look through you can see the image you're shooting it wasn't that way you could maybe look through and focus and frame but then you had to move that tube out of the way and put the film in front of the lens. And so you would look in a parallax viewfinder on the side, but this camera had been reflexed, meaning that it had had a pellicle prism placed inside of it so that when the film was exposed, it was blocked. But then as the shutter came around, it would open and you could see through that prism through the lens. And that was not original. So Ken Stone removed that, And he is such a mechanical genius. He made it so that you can't tell that it was ever that way. And then became the great challenge of finding black crinkle paint, which had been outlawed in the United States because it seems that it was a carcinogen. It's a different story for a different day, but I definitely did some uh, covert work uh, with the camera in the trunk of my car and me crossing borders (laughs) in order to make that finish happen, but that's a long story. So then that camera came and is now, hopefully now and forever on display at the clubhouse. And as I said, the second camera that I was looking for, of course, would have been uh, a Pathé camera that uh, Billy Bitzer had used with D.W. Griffith.
0: Before we go on to that, Um, When you embarked on this journey of looking for these two cameras, how sure were you of their actual existence?
1: I wasn't. There was no guarantee that I was going to find these things. It's just that I was realizing, you know, cameras aren't like a broken dish that you immediately kind of toss into the trash. Well, I mean, some people probably try and glue them back together, but (laughs) the majority of them are thrown into the trash. Cameras aren't that way, you know, because they hold a certain intrinsic value. And I had a suspicion that these things existed, especially since I realized after viewing the collection of the ASC that there were many, many cameras that existed. I had no idea still existed. Lots of them.
0: Like, for instance.
1: Uh, In our collection, we have a Han Gehrs camera, which is an incredibly rare uh, German hand crank camera. We have a Russell camera which is a Bakelite-bodied hand-crank camera that's incredibly elusive. We have many, many things that are just, you know, unusual. Aside from the regular cameras that you see out there, like Mitchells and Bell & Howells, and, you know, there are a lot of Pathé cameras out there and a lot of Debris Parvos. I mean, go on eBay and you'll find a Debris Parvo. (laughs) They're always for sale for three or four grand. But I just had a feeling, especially with the Toland camera, because it was a Mitchell and a and c And we weren't that far away from those cameras still being used. I mean, when I worked at the Paramount Lab in the 90s, they were still using those cameras to shoot the multi-camera TV shows. So they still existed. So it was simply a matter of putting the pieces together and not alerting a lot of people to their existence. Because clearly, there are lots of other people out there that would love to get their mitts on those cameras. I didn't want those cameras clearly for personal gain. I wanted them to go into the museum to be seen by cinematographers and up-and-coming cinematographers uh, for learning purposes. You know, this this is what we do when we look at these old things. We learn. We learn about the past, we hear the stories about the past and build a, a comprehension of what it was to make films then versus what it is to shoot films now.
0: It's really amazing how the Mitchell camera was an industry standard almost a hundred years ago. And the design of it was robust enough to be converted for an entirely new era of filmmaking, even up until the turn of the century.
1: It's still in use because the guts of the Panavision film cameras, you know, the Gold 2 or the Platinum, those cameras, if you open them, are basically identical to Mitchell. They have the same type of movement. They might have an extra, you know, wheel, a uh, pulley or something in there for the film to roll on to make them a little bit quieter. But if you look at the movements between uh, a Mitchell NC or BNC camera and the Panavision uh, Platinum camera, they're essentially identical.
0: And because Panavision started out primarily as a lens company, if you wanted to use a Panavision lens, you were putting it on a Mitchell camera with a Panavision mount. That is correct. And I'm sure someone there at some point was, was it like the 1960s? I was looking up information on the Panavision R200. Sometime in the 1960s, they just decided to grab those guts and make their own camera, which is amazing, you know, like Wayne Kennan ASC used it to shoot Seinfeld in the 1990s.
1: I know. Well, those those cameras, uh, you know, the Super 200s, they look like a Mitchell BNC because they are. Uh, They refined it, of course. Panavision, uh, if nothing else, has always... Been fantastic at refining the tools that we use as cinematographers. You know the lenses, the cameras, the gear heads. You know they really, really, really made life easier and more effective, more productive for cinematographers in their designs. I hope I don't take anything away from the great glory that is Panavision by saying that basically they used a Mitchell camera, but they were wise enough to know that this design. Was practically as good as it could possibly be, with the exception of making it a little more noiseless and maybe improving upon the gearing and uh, giving the cameras more versatility and more options. You know, you can't handhold a BNC camera, but you can handhold a Panavision Gold 2. Uh, it's not that comfortable, <laughs> uh, but you can because it's still a pretty he- heavy damn camera. But you're no longer having to use uh, an IMO as a handheld camera or an Arri 2C, both of which are fine cameras, but don't offer the options that the Panavision Gold 2 would have offered, you know, an operator. And, you know, the viewing systems in the, in the Panavision cameras, probably the greatest achievement. They really improved the viewing in those cameras well over the pellicle situation in the reflex Mitchell cameras, even in just the viewing tubes. You know, you have several sizes of viewing tubes. You have a handheld one, a little short guy. You have the big one that you're going to use on the dolly that has the eyepiece leveler uh, adjustment, which those are great achievements. And I think they won a bunch of Academy Awards over the years for their, you know, scientific achievement. Because they did great things. But yeah, that camera exists today as one of the greatest achievements in motion picture cameras. The other, of course, being the Aeroflex cameras, which are also extraordinary in their own right.
0: Right. I, I think the last 35 millimeter Aeroflex camera to be produced was the 435 Extreme, which came out in 2004.
1: I, I used the 435 a ton on music videos, you know, that's a, that's an MOS camera. But before that we're using the BLs, you know, the BL3, the BL4, and then the 535 was uh, in a redesign entirely, you know, a beautiful camera, such a gorgeous camera.
0: It's hard to imagine 35 millimeter cameras getting any better, not to compare Panavision to Arri, but just the basics of 35 millimeter camera technology unlike digital camera technology now where, you know, a newer quote unquote better camera comes out practically every year. Uh, But it makes me wonder if maybe this is what it was like a hundred years ago when cinematography itself was still in its infancy.
1: The biggest breakthroughs were from the Lumiere camera, which had a 50 foot magazine, but was also an optical printer and a projector all in one to the Pathé camera, which had a 300-meter magazine, let's call it 400 feet, but uh, a 300-meter magazine and, you know, a footage counter and an adjustable uh, shutter and uh, things started appearing in front of the cameras like vignetting irises and all of that, to the Bell & Howell 2709, which was a metal camera, metal-bodied camera with absolute precision, which had uh, registration pins that were built into the movement and the film was literally pushed onto the pins. So there was zero tolerance. There's absolutely no way that the film is going to move in the gate once it's there. And then from the Bell & Howell 2709 to the Mitchell camera, which its greatest innovation was the rack-over viewing system, you didn't have to, as with the Bell & Hal, with the Bell & Hal camera, in order to change lenses. You did have a turret on the front. You could turn the lens. But then you had to move the camera over on a dovetail where you had to push the mat box out, move the camera over, turn the turret, look through the viewfinder, focus and set your frame. And then you had to do that in reverse. You had to slide the camera over, turn the turret back so that the lens was in front of the film and pull the mat box back. Whereas with the Mac- Mitchell camera, all you had to do was rack over the c- camera body, right? And so that's a gigantic innovation. It saved a jillion hours of shooting time and actually probably saved 100,000 cinematographers jobs because they didn't forget to push the matte box back in, which happened a lot with the 2709. According to some of the things that I've read, a lot of shots were ruined because as they're doing the 2709 process and they're in a hurry and the director's going, let's go, let's go, let's go. They would forget the last step, which is to slide the matte box back in. You're not looking through the camera, crank the shot and then look and go, oh, my God, the matte box is out there. It's in the shot. So uh, that happened. But, you know, these innovations happen. But, I, you know, I think, you know, film. to your point, your earlier point, film camera innovations are probably over uh, as far as 35 millimeter goes, mostly because of economics. I mean, there just aren't that many shows that are driving the process. You know, there there aren't that many people shooting 35 millimeter film that they're like, wow, we need to reinvent this, you know, incredible Panavision or Aeroflux camera. It's just not a fact anymore. If that were the only business in town, I dare say they probably would have made some more uh, achievements. Maybe with the newer uh, materials that exist today, carbon fiber and the like, they would have been able to make lighter cameras, perhaps. Uh, certainly, you know, the video taps would have all been uh, maybe 4K video taps. Who knows? But as it stands, I don't think they're really going to spend a great deal of engineering and money and R&D into redesigning those cameras when they work fantastic. And it's not like the film stock itself is changing in such a way that it requires those movements to be altered or redesigned. But I will say this. I recently taught an ASC masterclass on film, and I shot uh, with some hand-crank cameras. I shot with uh, our Mitchell camera, and I shot with a Pathé camera. And I'm happy to report that those images were just as gorgeous and stunning as ever. You know, they were really, really fascinating to see something shot with a Pathé camera projected onto a big screen. That was kind of mind blowing.
0: Speaking of which, uh, the one you really wanted for this collection was Billy Bitzer's Pathé 1911 studio camera. What makes it so special?
1: You know, I am a historian and I believe in preserving history, and it is a fact that D.W. Griffith changed filmmaking entirely. Before him, they were cranking out one-reelers at best, you know? And uh, before him, many of the innovations that he and Bitzer utilized maybe had been tried but hadn't been perfected, you know? So certain things like in Intolerance, specifically, in Intolerance, the giant dolly booming shot, people had never seen anything like that. You know, the camera starts well up over the set and as it pushes in it gradually drops. That was mind bending for people in in the theaters. You know, before Griffith came along, people couldn't even understand really how a medium shot existed because where's the person's legs at, right? Griffith brought all of these innovations into the cinema dialogue. He made these things every day. Now, while some of his choices of subject matter most specifically the klansman which was a racist awful book that uh, he renamed the birth of a nation a pretty darn horrible topic for a film let's be honest that being said we can't ignore the innovations that he created we can damn him for his content but let's not damn the process now while bitzer's camera may have shot what was unquestionably a racist topic film It also shot dozens of other films. You know, before uh, Carl Struess and other cinematographers took over for Bitzer with Griffith, that camera was used. I mean, it did work on Intolerance. It did work on Broken Blossoms. It did work on Way Down East, right? It did work on all these other films. So I felt that because it had helped innovate so many things in the history of cinema, that it was a valuable piece and deserved to be on display.
0: You said you wanted people to be able to learn from the ASC's camera collection, uh, but what has curating it taught you about the art and craft of cinematography?
1: So very, very much. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate that I've been able to spend the time that I have with the collection, and not only with the collection, but with so many members of the ASC, because I'm there quite a lot. Being around all of those people, obviously, you know, it's like osmosis. You you just, you, you soak it in. I've had conversations with cinematographers over these many long years now, like Conrad Hall. What a treasure. Like Vilmos Zygmunt. These people, like Vittorio Storero. These people I've sat with, and I've had conversations, and we've talked cinematography. And at the same time, we've talked the history of cinema. And I've been able to show them things in the collection, and they've had recollections of, oh, you know, I know about this thing, and this was used in such and such a way. In that regard, I have learned a great deal. But simply in understanding the mechanics of the the mechanisms, not to be redundant, uh, themselves, just understanding and looking at progress and how things evolve. You know, the evolution of cinematography is kind of stunning because we went from it not being anything at all, not existing, to people being entertained by it in a short manner of time. And so much so that it became a multi, multi multi-billion dollar business. Who knows after 100 years, a trillion dollar business that it's been and is still here. You know, We're still out there telling stories. So to me, getting to spend my spare time, it's not just about having the old cameras and cranking the old cameras and hanging out with them and all that. It's about... Respecting the art and craft of cinematography and how it's changed. And it's kind of afforded me uh, a set of goggles to look at how it's currently changing and how it's changed so much over the past few years. And one could say that at the birth of HD, the images weren't necessarily super great, <laughs> they kind of sucked. But at a certain point, we as cinematographers were very often required to use cameras because the budget suddenly couldn't support the use of film. We can't, you know, process and run it through telecine you can't do that anymore. It's, oh, it's too expensive. Well, gee, six months ago was no problem, you know, but now it is. Well, cinema is changing again. And even as we speak, it's changing. And it's very exciting to to view all of this. I guess I'm a fortunate person in the time that I was born because I'm able to have worked in film, worked in HD. You know, I've been able to use utilize all these tools I had hot lights. Now I've got LEDs, right? I had to use process trailers and now I have volume walls, all in the same career. That's kind of crazy. You know, when you think about it, if you're a baker and you make bread, you're probably using basically the same techniques that were used 2000 years ago, right? So that hasn't evolved in the same way that cinematography has. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's important also to look forward And say, where are we headed? And I'm going to leave that to everyone else's point of view. But I think there are some strong indicators of where cinematography may be headed in the short term and the long term. I think it's important for people, just like we've evolved over the past, to pay attention and look at what's about to happen and be a part of it, don't be a victim of it.
0: Hmm? Right, it's like, to know where you're going, you have to remember where you've been.
1: It's important to look at those changes that have happened over the evolution of cinema. You know, if if I'd been a guy, if I'd been a guy that said, well, you know, sound, I'm not ever doing sound, it's never gonna happen, right? Or I'm not gonna shoot color, the color is not gonna be great, right? Or I'm not gonna shoot in HD, it's never, well, at each of those times, You have to evolve and you have to roll with it. You know, if you're going to be successful in this industry, you have to be willing to take a chance and stick your neck out. There was a time when someone would say, okay, do you want Panavision or Aerie? Do you want Zeiss or Cook? Do you want Kodak or Fuji? And then one day, and I remember this very clearly, this one day, the producer said, okay, so you're shooting on the red one. And I was like, I am? (laughs) And there was no book, you know, and no great resource to immediately absorb all the information in the world about a red camera in order to make it perfect. It was something that I learned as I evolved, and I had to take a chance. And you know, uh, this is something. Luckily, I'd spent time in post situations where I understood what a waveform was, you know, and and a vector scope for that matter. And so, having spent that time in there, I knew, luckily. Where my exposure probably should be in order to have adequate exposure for whatever the final product was going to look like, which I had no idea because I'd never used it. And at that, in the very beginning, there was no DIT, you know, no one to say, I ah, think you're a little thin in there. Maybe you want to open up a third, you know, none of that. Just, oh my, uh, I'm shooting with this new, whole new system. And I feel like in my heart of hearts that we're approaching a similar time. Uh, And uh, again, everyone else can build their own opinions about what's going to happen in the future. But uh, I will say this. If there's anything that you can learn over time in both cinematography and in just the general history of film is that expense will drive what the final product is. Budget will drive that. If people are able to discover less expensive ways to end up with a similar product, I don't want to say better necessarily. But a similar product, they probably will do that.
0: Other than the clubhouse in Hollywood, is there any place people can go uh, where they can see pieces from the ASE's museum collection?
1: Uh, Currently, at this very moment, uh, we have uh, Billy Fraker's Airy2C camera that he used on uh, Bullet. And they have a display in the Transportation Museum at the Smithsonian of cars from the movies and they have the mustang that was used in bullet and billy fraker asc's airy 2c is at the car currently and will be there for the next eight years i think it's wonderful to be able to you know it's it's provenance right it's able to reconnect those things the car and the camera because they made some compelling images going over those streets in san francisco with that car fantastic shots and uh fraker was you know kind of a Uh, a pioneer in that sort of stuff. And uh, there is a display at the Academy Museum currently and for the next year of uh, The Godfather. And I helped the folks at the Academy Museum curate the camera aspect of that collection. We got the proper Mitchell BNC camera with the proper world gear head with the proper dolly so that it looks exactly like the camera system used on the godfather whether or not that's the exact camera we can't be for sure because we haven't been able to locate the camera reports but there aren't that many csc bncr cameras that exist so there are the odds are good that it is actually the actual camera that worked on the godfather we can't be sure about that
0: all right so for now if you want to see most of these pieces you have to go to the clubhouse but you can't just walk in and start cranking a camera
1: you need to contact me if you really want to get the Nickel Tour. There have been people who managed to get in and look around, but you don't get the stories and you don't get to turn the crank. But you know, for everyone out there, if you want to go to uh, the ASC website and uh, dig around, you'll find those Museum Minutes. And you know, if you do happen to find yourself in Hollywood, and I don't happen to be working on a film or a television series, I'd be more than happy to show you around. Come and uh, check things out. It's a great place to learn. And it's also, you know, just a fulfilling place to be because it is the temple of cinematography. There's nothing like walking through those doors, realizing that all of the greats have walked through those doors at one time or
0: another. Year after year, that feeling never goes away.
1: We We can now say basically century after century at this point, you know.
0: That was Steve Gaynor, ASC, ASK, talking about the ASC Museum and Historic Camera Collection. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think in the comments on the ASC website, and please leave a rating for us on your favorite podcast platform. You can find the transcript of this episode along with links to the Museum Minute videos in the show notes at theasc.com. While you're there, you can also find articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews and archival stories, notes on new products and services, and the ASC store. Stay up to date with the latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos by following American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. This episode was mixed at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks again for listening, and that's a wrap.